0: Welcome to the Cedar Fort. Come Follow Me Made Easier broadcast. My name is Linda Cherry, and this week we're going to be studying Genesis 24 through 27. These chapters are really crucial for helping us to understand why marriage within the covenant is so important, and also to have a clearer understanding of what it means to be a birthright son. What is the birthright? We start with uh, chapter 24, where Abraham calls his trusted servant, who we think might be Eleazar, but is not named in this chapter, to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. To Abraham, it's very important that Isaac marry within the covenant. And as they are living in the land of Canaan amongst the Canaanites who worship other gods, Abraham has determined that Eleazar, if it is Eleazar, Um, has to go back to the land that uh, Abraham left, where his family is still living in uh, Mesopotamia. And as he sets uh, the servant to go forward on this important task, he asked Eleazar to put his hand under his Abraham's thigh to make a covenant promise. Now, the Joseph Smith translation changes that from thigh to hand. But in other areas in the scriptures, we see again, the uh, instruction to place a hand under the thigh, such as when Jacob is wrestling with the angel uh, later, and the angel places his hand on Jacob's thigh and puts his thigh out of joint. At that same time, the angel blesses Jacob with the blessings of the covenant and specifically the birthright blessings, which we'll discuss a little bit uh, further later. Um, And uh, Jacob's thigh is put out of joint at the, for the rest of his life. So it is probable that as part of an ancient method of making a covenant and swearing that in fact, the servant of Abraham was to place his hand um, under or on Abraham's thigh Now, why the thigh? Uh, Many scholars believe that uh, it actually is associated with the loins and the promise of the covenant that through one's loins, uh, one would have eternal seed and increase. In fact, this is one of the most choice blessings of the covenant that we can have eternal families. And so the sense is that Abraham uh, wants Isaac to marry within the covenant so that Isaac can uh, Reap those covenant blessings of the uh, seed without number that Abraham had been promised, and also that that seed or all of his children and those generations that followed would be sealed in the covenant to them and that they would all become part of this covenant family. In fact, the covenant family will shortly in the next few chapters take on the name of Israel. When Jacob's name is changed to Israel, And it's important for us to understand that Israel is much more than a bloodline uh, or or a matter of our DNA. But Israel is the covenant family to which all people are invited to belong. And so we see here the seeds of that family uh, being born, if you will, and uh, being established on this foundation of being married within the covenant. So Abraham's servant, who we believe might have been Eleazar, is given this really difficult task that he is to go through the desert um, many, many miles and find a wife for Isaac. And more than just a wife, but a wife that would be a a good, equally yoked companion to Isaac. It's interesting to note that um, when this all occurs, Isaac is 40 years old. So it would seem that uh, Abraham has waited for a while Before making this decision. And he is concerned that he is nearing the end of his life and wants to make sure that everything is set up properly for Isaac. So the servant goes through the desert. We know that he has 10 camels and he has this daunting task of finding the right wife for Isaac. And as he is on his way into uh, the village of uh, Abraham's family, his brother that has been left behind uh, after Abraham departed under the Lord's instruction, uh, it's going through his mind. How will I know the right girl? And, uh, how will she accept this proposal? Will she be willing to leave her family and travel miles into a land? She doesn't know to marry a man she's never seen. And so he begins to pray to the Lord. And, uh, he says, here are the conditions that I'll know I have found the right woman. And, uh, Lord, please make this happen so that when I arrive at the well, which is, would be the first stopping place after coming through the desert, that uh, this young woman will come forward and she'll offer me a drink. But even more than that, uh, Lord, make it so that she offers to uh, give water to my camels. And he has 10 camels with him. And According to different scholars, those camels can drink anywhere from 25 to 40 gallons each. After coming through the desert. So, this would be quite an endeavor for any young woman when we think about the sheer weight, let alone the number of trips involved. But the scriptures tell us that no sooner had the servant finished saying the prayer than Rebecca comes forth out of her house and comes to greet him. Uh, he asks her for a drink. She freely uh, jumps at that task to give him a drink, but then she also answers verbatim the prayer that he had prayed and she offers to give water to all of his camels at that moment uh, the servant is overcome with uh, relief and um, probably a sense of awe that the lord has answered his prayer so perfectly and um, he jumps off of his camel and right away he knows that this is the wife that's meant for Isaac. And he says a prayer of thanksgiving and he draws out of the saddlebags um, gifts for Rebecca. Immediately, he gives her a golden earring and uh, jewelry. Now, this was part of the ancient customs of the day that a prospective bridegroom would send a person, a representative that would be appointed and called the friend of the bridegroom Uh, to take gifts to the bride called Matan and also offer gifts of money uh, to her family called Mahar. And we see the servant doing this very thing uh, with uh, Rebecca as he offers her the jewelry. Uh, She invites him into uh, her home uh, and he immediately also uh, makes the proposal and also offers coins and goods to her family. Uh, Rebecca is living with her brother, Laban, and we're going to hear a lot more about him as as the story goes on over the next few chapters in the next few weeks. Um, and it appears that Rebecca is actually the grandniece of Abraham. So we have a very close family connection, uh, which is unusual for us today, but, uh, very important as we are reading these early scriptures to see that in order to marry within a family covenant, there is an emphasis on people marrying within families. Um, and so we will see that this is the way that a family of faith is devel- developed in um, the ancient world. And so um, as uh, as who I think is Eleazar, enters the house and he has this prayer of thanksgiving. Um, he offers the, the gifts, of, uh, gifts of jewelry and probably uh, clothing was also usually presented to a prospective bride, uh, rather I might say, some fine fabrics were usually presented to a prospective bride from which she would make her wedding garments to, to wear on her special day. And um, and the gifts given to the parents and um, Eleazar uh, is so excited and, and overcome and we can't help but think that it must be because his prayer has been answered in a way that he probably really couldn't even begin to comprehend that he's so excited. And he basically says something to the effect of, before we even sit down and eat, I wanna make sure that you understand why I'm here and uh, what it is I'm asking and I'd like to have an answer. Well, it's really important for us to see um, in this marriage proposal and contract that um, Rebecca's family allows her the choice And Eleazar is also uh, respecting her choice to say yes or no about going. And even the timing, as it turns out, because uh, he's really anxious to get back to Abraham and to Isaac. And and he asks Rebecca and her family for her to leave the very next day with him. And her family turns to her and asks her, um, does she want to be part of this? And, And does she want to, number one, accept the proposal and uh, further, is she willing to leave the next day with a perfect stranger, going to live with a perfect stranger? It says a lot about Rebecca uh, that she says yes, um, not only to the marriage, but to leaving the next day. And We can't help but relate the fact that she had come out to offer water to um, Eleazar and also to the camels, that this is a young woman who acts quickly um, who is undoubtedly led by the spirit she is a woman of faith as we will see later as she bears children uh, to isaac her prospective husband and that it is undoubtedly a spiritual awakening and a spiritual confirmation to her that enables her to so quickly answer in the affirmative that she will be part of the marriage And um, that she will leave the next day and leave her family behind, probably to never see them again. And so we have to again review, why is it that marrying in the covenant is so important that uh, Rebecca would leave her home, that Isaac would trust uh, in Eleazar's choice, and that Abraham would send forth his servant in the first place. One of the scripture mastery for seminary is from Deuteronomy 7, instructing the children of Israel that they are to marry within the covenant. Because if they were to marry outside of the covenant, the Lord warns that uh, their new spouses would take their hearts away to the worship of other gods. When we really contemplate the blessings of the covenant, uh, specifically the blessings of eternal families, eternal increase, And as we read previously in uh, the book of Abraham, Abraham chapter two, and understanding that Abraham's family, Abraham's seed, as it said in Abraham two, were to go forth and bless all of the people of the earth. Abraham two specifies for us that the method by which Abraham's seed would bless the entire earth would be through the blessings of the priesthood that Abraham had sought for diligently and had obtained, had passed on to Isaac, and that Isaac will pass on to his son Jacob, who will be renamed Israel when he also becomes part of the covenant. And so when we think about what the blessings of the covenant entail, the sense of a promised land, And for us, we might recognize that beyond a land that we might live in during our mortality, that this specifically pertains to the promised land of the celestial kingdom, Uh, the blessing of the priesthood and that how the priesthood is passed on from father to son during this period of time. And then the blessings of eternal increase and eternal families, we might begin to understand why it is so important to have a marriage that is with another covenant believer, uh, someone who will be dedicated to raising children in the covenant and teaching about the covenant. In fact, when the Lord calls Abraham and makes the covenant with Abraham, it tells us in, um, in Genesis that, um, that the Lord knew He, uh, this is Genesis 18. This is what the Lord said of Abraham, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So that's Genesis 18 verse 19. And what the Lord is saying is one of the reasons he knew he could trust Abraham and give Abraham that precious covenant is the Lord says, I know Abraham will teach his children the covenant, and that he'll bring his children up in the covenant. Therefore, the blessing, the promised blessing, that all of the people of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed could come to pass, because how could that happen if, if, uh, if people are marrying outside of the covenant, and in fact, then they lose Any sort of knowledge of the covenant. Many times we lose the promises that the Lord has given to those who have gone before us because we simply don't know what to ask for, or we don't know that those promises have been made. So many today are unaware of the Abrahamic covenants. Many today are unaware of the blessings of the priesthood. And so they don't know what to ask for. This is our sacred charge as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints to whom that restoration of the priesthood has been made and the restoration of the fullness of the gospel, including the new and everlasting covenant, is that we have that opportunity to share that knowledge with others so that they can ask for those blessings in their lives. One of my favorite promises that I have found many are unaware of is the promise in uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter nine, is the promise given to Enoch, even before Noah, of the rainbow. And to Enoch in in Genesis chapter nine, the Joseph Smith translation, the promise of the rainbow is that when the people on the earth remember Zion, Enoch city, and look upward and ask for help from Zion, then those who are the translated beings on Zion can come and assist the people on earth Who are attempting to build zion now i found that many people are unaware of that promise and because they don't know about it they don't know that they can ask for this help that they can remember zion's purpose that the people who live on zion are translated beings not resurrected beings and they're translated joseph smith tells us so that they can come to earth and help those of us on earth, and we can bear to be in their presence, such as a visitation of Moroni to Joseph Smith. And so I think it's so important for us as we study the scriptures to particularly study the promises of the covenant. In fact, the title page of the Book of Mormon tells us that one of the purposes of the Book of Mormon is to remind us of the promises made to the fathers. In my life, I've actually made several journal entries that I refer to frequently of all of the promises that I come across as I read the scriptures, and there are many. It's really quite awe-inspiring, and it's given me an anchor in my life and helped me through difficult times as I remember the promises of the Lord, and I believe that we will receive them. So many of those promises are conditional upon our asking for them and asking that we might receive them. And so it is, I think it's important for us to think about how the Lord gave Abraham that praise, that he knew that Abraham would teach these important things to his children. In fact, we see that in this story, this very story of looking for a wife for Isaac. And I hope that we will take the time to review the covenants with our children and help them to have an understanding of why they're so precious and an understanding of why it is that they might marry in the covenant and continue with those covenant blessings in their own families. Now, speaking of covenant blessings, uh, before Rebecca left with um, Abraham's servant, it's very sweet that her brother Laban promised her uh, some of her own gifts that resonate with what we know as promises of the covenant. He said to her, Oh, Rebecca, you will be the mother of thousands of millions. And again, this is going back to the covenant given to Abraham that his posterity would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as the stars in heaven, literally uncountable. And again, the only way that we can receive those blessings is through our diligence in making and keeping our own covenants. And we will see that even though Sarah herself only had one child, Isaac, that was part of that covenant blessing of posterity, and that Rebecca has two children, we will see that those blessings to both Sarah and Rebecca are fulfilled in having uh, innumerable posterity, including those of us today um, as their posterity. Whether we are blood Israel or adopted Israel, Paul and Nephi uh, tell us doesn't matter that all are alike and accounted as Israel who enter into the covenant of baptism, the new and everlasting covenant and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are part of that promised heritage to Sarah and to Rebecca and to the many mothers and fathers who have gone before us. Now we picture uh, Rebecca and uh, the servant, who I think is Eleazar, uh, traveling through the desert. And we have to wonder what was going through Rebecca's mind. Uh, We will find out later in the scriptures that Rebecca was uh, 20 years younger than um, Isaac was. And surely as any young girl would, she is wondering about what her husband is going to be like. And undoubtedly, she's been asking Eleazar all about Isaac and And all about the living conditions and we can't help but think she might have a little bit of nervous anxiety uh, as she begins to approach and as they do begin to approach uh, the scriptures tell us that Isaac was meditating out in a field and what was he meditating about wouldn't that be fun to know Um, but Rebecca sees him and she asks the servant who that man is and and um, he tells her that it is Isaac, her prospective husband. And at that time, then, Rebecca takes out um, and covers her head uh, with a veil. Uh, this is actually a very beautiful symbol that for many of our day, uh, the veil has become uh, not, what it, what, not what it was originally. Let me just say that. That um, oftentimes a veil woman Uh, is now associated with uh, the sense that a woman has to cover herself or uh, that she is too much of a temptress. But if we go back to the ancient customs, to cover oneself with a veil was uh, really a beautiful act of this preparing for a marriage. Uh, We will see later in the scriptures that Moses wears a veil. When he's going to go speak to the Lord, he removes the veil the same way that Rebecca will remove her veil when she um, is actually wed to Isaac and and comes before him. Uh, We'll read the story of Leah wearing a veil that made it so that uh, Jacob didn't recognize that she wasn't uh, his beloved, Rachel. Um, But we will also see in um, 1 Corinthians um, 11, uh, we will see reference to a veil Uh, There as well, uh, where Paul instructs uh, women to be wearing a veil when they're praying or officiating uh, in certain ordinances so that the angels will take notice is what Paul says. Now, that's an interesting thing, and it's caused a lot of controversy over time. But if we look at the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we see that Paul's first instructions is he says, Don't depart from the ordinances the way I've given them to you. And if we think about what might those ordinances be that would require a woman to wear a veil so that angels will take note of what she's doing. We go back to some of the original language, and um, here we have tremendous help from uh, a BYU professor, Alonzo Gaskell, um, who has written a number of books about symbolism. Um, and um, tells us that actually um, the veil was a symbol of authority and that if we look at some ancient carvings in the Christian catacombs in Rome, we see men and women standing together wearing special robes with the women with veils on their heads, their arms upraised and a little lamb in the center of them. And it appears that they are praying together. Now, um, Brother Gaskell helps us to understand that in context of what were likely early Christian uh, ordinances being performed in those catacombs, uh, it looks as if the women are wearing clothing uh, that is similar to the clothing that had been worn by the ancient priests uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, and that they are in some way officiating in what looks to be a, a, a special temple prayer ordinance. And then the sense that Paul first says, don't depart from the ordinances as I've given them to you. And then a woman ought to have a veil on her head or authority on her head. So the angels will take notice or bear witness. Uh, We might see things as the veil being a tremendous privilege for a woman to wear as representative of a certain authority given to her by God. And um, so we're going to backtrack a little bit here with the sense of Rebecca wearing that veil as she uh, alights from the camel and goes forward to meet Isaac. Um, We might see it as a symbol of covenant. We might see it as a symbol of their covenant marriage. And that uh, while Isaac is a birthright son, has certain privileges through the priesthood, that um, Rebecca is is getting dressed in a way to represent her equality with Isaac. Um, This is so important for us to see in the scriptures. Many, many times I have women tell me that they think women don't get equal play in the scriptures and that in fact, all the scriptures are God talking to men and women are sort of an afterthought. I hope as we study that we'll see that really isn't the case. And that we will see how often um, the Lord in the scriptures is lifting a woman up, specifically and especially through marriage, as we will see every time that a dispensation is restored or the gospel is restored to to a new dispensation, we will note an equality in marriage that isn't noticeable in the culture around those people. So, for example, we see Sarah really, truly beloved by Abraham in a time when, because of her barrenness, Abraham could have divorced her uh, in terms of what was happening in the rest of the culture of their time. But Abraham does not divorce uh, Sarah for her barrenness, and he loves her and uh, cherishes her and keeps her in a very honored position as his equal. We see the same with Moses in Zipporah, And uh, we will see the same with Joseph Smith and Emma at a time when women were seen to not have much value before the Lord or um, have much uh, of a say in terms of society. Most important of all, we see Jesus offering women an important equal role during his ministry when he teaches Mary and Martha At a time when it was literally against the law for a father or husband to teach the scriptures to his wife or to his daughter. So I hope that as we go along, you will take note of how, when the Lord is uh, performing a covenant marriage or renewing um, the gospel, the new and everlasting covenant, that you will see that a woman is always lifted up in her role. We, We will see that throughout the scriptures. So in any case, we are going to see that for sure in Rebecca and the story of Rebecca and Isaac and the children that Rebecca gives birth to. So Rebecca comes off the camel. She puts the veil over her head. Uh, She and Isaac um, are uh, brought together. Uh, They are married in a covenant marriage. And it tells us that Isaac loved Rebecca and he was much comforted by her and they went in fact to live in the um tent that sarah had lived in before his his mother sarah so it's really quite beautiful and touching i love how many love stories there are in the scriptures that help us to understand how important marriage is Um, and this is one of them so um it tells us that rebecca was also barren following in the same sort of footsteps as um, her mother-in-law sarah that in fact, Rebecca was barren for 20 years. And um, Isaac prayed that she might be able to have children. I know beyond a a shadow of a doubt that Rebecca was also praying that she might be able to have children. And isn't this always sort of the test of the Lord? They're promised that if they're married in the covenant, that they're going to have um, so many children that you can't number them in terms of their posterity. And then they're put to the test. Will they believe those promises even when uh, it seems impossible for them to be fulfilled? This is the test that each one of us also encounters. Each one of us has had patriarchal blessings or perhaps blessings of healing or even whisperings from the spirit that have made certain promises to us. And um, we wonder how it's possible for those promises to be fulfilled. Certain things happen that make us think, they won't be fulfilled. But we can show faith like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and many, many others who have gone before us, who, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, that they viewed the promises afar off and they embraced them as if they had already been fulfilled. And the Lord will bless those of us who exercise this sort of faith in the promises that He has given to us. So in the meantime, while they're waiting for more children, are waiting for their children to uh, arrive, the promises of the covenant. Uh, Abraham marries; he marries Keturah, and uh, he has six sons through Keturah. Remembering that the blessings of posterity to Abraham are also in effect for Ishmael, his son, and the sons that he that were born through Keturah, that there are many, many relatives uh, of Israel through Abraham, uh, to which we need to have respect and compassion and brotherhood um, and heal some of the wounds that have occurred over time in the separations that have occurred through jealousy over birthright blessings and uh, so on. So uh, Abraham has six sons through Keturah, and then Abraham dies. He dies at the age of 175. And as had been prophesied uh, and promised through the Lord, Isaac is the one who is the birthright son, and everything is given to Isaac. We're going to talk a great deal about birthright uh, throughout the scriptures and uh, try to gain a better understanding about what it means. Oftentimes, it seems so unfair to uh, people who live in our day and, and don't have a full understanding about how things worked. But um, in these ancient days, the birthright meant that that son would be the one to be the priesthood leader. He would get a double portion of what his father had. But with that came a responsibility, priesthood responsibility to care for and look over, look out for all of the family members, including those siblings that did not receive the birthright. It was understood that um, that the birthright son would take this responsibility very seriously, which would include making sure that they had all that they needed um, in terms of both financial and um, land and, and, and uh, animals and so forth. It wasn't that the uh, non-birthright son was sent away empty handed far from it. It was this deep responsibility upon the birthright son to see that all needs were met and taken care of. Uh, So he had the priesthood, the, the priesthood leadership for the family. He had the double portion, which he was to share with the family. When we think about Jesus Christ as the birthright son, that might help us to have a better idea as to how those birthright blessings were to be carried out for the rest of the family. Jesus, as we know, is the firstborn son of the father. Jesus was God in the pre-mortal life, and um, everything was given into his hand. But because of Jesus's goodness, and because of his understanding of what it means to be that priesthood leader for all of us, he shares everything he has with us. He makes us joint heirs with him. He promises us that All that the father has has been given into his hands, and then all that he has is given into our hands. He is the perfect exemplar of what a birthright son and a birthright promise is meant to be. Now, while Jesus was the firstborn son of the father, we'll see a pattern throughout scripture that most times The birthright does not end up going to the firstborn. We'll see that with Father Jacob and his sons when the birthright blessing goes to uh, Joseph. But we will also see that Judah receives some very important keys of leadership as well, which causes some confusion for those brothers and for their posterity. We'll see, for example, that Nephi is not the oldest brother, but he becomes the birthright son, and both Nephi and Joseph really earn that birthright privilege and status because of their own seeking after God, because they sought to have a covenant with God, and they don't earn it by being children or grandchildren. They earn it from the state of their own heart. Uh, we see that in both joseph and nephi as they seek to know god and they seek to follow him and to keep his commandments so we might say that the birthright son always is the first one to be born again and we will also notice just as we know the story so well of laman and lemuel how many chances they had uh how many chances they had to step forward and to exercise that faith in god and to be completely committed to their covenants. Um, They had numerous chances. We see that just even in going back to obtain the the plates. And so it is also with Joseph's brothers. Uh, The oldest oldest sons, Reuben and Simeon, are given a number of chances. And again, we will see that uh, although Joseph of the 12 sons of Israel receives the birthright, the other sons are not thrown out. I always love seeing and reading the book of Revelation where it describes that in the millennial city, that each gate of the millennial city has the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. There are no throwaway tribes. There are no throwaway sons of Israel um, just because one received a birthright remembering again that role of what a birthright son is to do he is to gather and watch out for and we see that as we read the story of israel and as we will in the latter days specifically see the role of joseph as the birthright son in saving israel again as joseph once saved israel from the famine in egypt Uh, So I I hope that as we read about birthrights and and the striving for birthrights, that we'll have a little bit better uh, perspective as we uh, go along. And so that leads us to the story of uh, Rebecca and her twins. So Rebecca, after 20 years, uh, finally becomes pregnant. And the Lord reveals to Rebecca that she has twins in her womb, and in fact, the Lord tells Rebecca from the very beginning that the younger, or the, excuse me, the older one, will serve the younger one. With the understanding, therefore, that the the second-born twin is actually going to be the birthright son. Here's another example for us of how Rebecca was a woman of faith and how she had the spirit with her to receive revelation. We can't help but think as before we go in the rest of the story that often confuses people, we can't help but think that Rebecca must surely have shared this information that she had received from the Lord with her husband, Isaac, um, before those babies were ever born. And that Isaac knew that the Lord had told Rebecca that the younger child, the last born child, was actually going to be the birthright leader. And so it is that uh, Rebecca gives birth to twins. The first one to arrive is Esau, which means red or hairy. Uh, Esau, by the way, becomes the father of the Edomites, which is interesting because their land is known for being red and uh, so Esau is the first, and the second is Jacob. Uh, Jacob means supplanter, um, and we're told in the scriptures that Jacob was a plain man, which if we go to the footnotes, uh, tells us that he was actually a perfect, simple, and whole man. Now, there's some other definitions or descriptions about Esau that help to give us a heads up about what is going to happen when Jacob actually receives the birthright. And that is that it tells us that um, Esau is a, um, he is a man of the earth and that he is a hunter in the land. Uh, In fact, uh, it's interesting because the only other times that someone is noted for being a Hunter or a cunning hunter is Nimrod at the Tower of Babel, is known for being a mighty hunter in the land. And Lib in the Book of Mormon is known for being a hunter. And it's kind of implied, and our friend uh, Hugh Nibley helps us to see an additional meaning in that sense of a hunter as it's used in this sense in the scriptures as being someone who is not showing a particular stewardship towards the animals, but rather using them in some sort of um, uh, harmful and manipulative way. Now, this is not to say uh, that animals were not meant for meat. Uh, That is not the case, but rather that in some way, uh, they are using some sort of cunning manipulation uh, on the animals. So those are just a couple of cross references in terms of Esau being described as a hunter. And um, early on in the description of Esau, uh, way before uh, the, the, um, the birthright is sold for a mess of pottage, uh, Esau uh, is said to ask the question, what profit shall this birthright do to me? Uh, he's all about uh, kind of fitting in with the neighbors and uh, meeting girls and uh, and his hunting. And uh, he doesn't seem to be very serious about what the responsibilities are that come with the covenant, um, specifically those priesthood responsibilities and the, the responsibilities of the birthright son. So in fact, in uh, Genesis twenty five verse thirty four, Um, It says Esau despised his birthright, and uh, he married outside of the covenant. So here, by comparison that his father and his mother had a marriage that was specifically arranged and ordained so that it could be a covenant marriage, uh, Esau marries outside of the covenant. He marries amongst the Canaanite women, and he's not much interested in what this birthright blessing would have been of the covenant and of the priesthood blessings. And so it says, in fact, that when he married outside the covenant, that he brought grief to both Rebecca and um, Isaac, and that's in Genesis 26, 36. It's important for us to to understand that uh, when we contemplate the the story, um, that is going to happen. Now, in the meantime, as I As I mentioned earlier, um, this covenant making is really important to be made individually with God and that Joseph and Nephi earned their status as a birthright son by seeking after God. Well, Isaac also did the same. Um, Isaac is the birthright son through Abraham, but we're told in the book of Genesis that Isaac valued that covenant and that he sought the Lord himself. And it's really quite important to understand that the Lord appeared to Isaac and renewed the covenant directly with Isaac. In other words, at that point, Isaac isn't the birthright son simply because Abraham was a wonderful father. But Isaac now is the birthright priesthood leader because he himself has made a covenant with the Lord. We'll see that same pattern with Jacob, that even though Jacob supposedly gets the birthright by trickery, I hope we'll see that really isn't the case, that after Jacob leaves his home, Jacob has his own encounter with the Lord who reaffirms with him the covenant and that he is the leader then of the family for the covenant. And so it is that for all of us, even though It's so important for us to teach our children the importance of the covenant. We have to understand that each of our children will have to have their own encounter with the Lord and make their own covenants with the Lord. This is something I really appreciate about the temple as we have it today, is that we sit separately and as individuals, we make the covenants with the Lord. This is important to our understanding so in genesis 26 the lord appears to isaac and in fact he appears to him two different occasions and he promises isaac all those things that had been promised to abraham and it tells us that the lord increased isaac a hundredfold that's genesis chapter 26 verse 12 and so isaac is the uh leader on earth the patriarch on earth uh, for these uh, covenant blessings And therefore, we're concerned about how are those blessings going to be carried forth to Isaac's sons? And we have the story that Isaac is near death, and it's implied in a fairly strong way that Isaac has a favorite amongst his two sons. His favorite is Esau, and he loves the food. He loves the venison that Esau makes for him. Isaac is blind very near the end of his life and he wants to give a blessing to his sons and so he sends Esau out to go and make venison for him and he said and then I will have a blessing for you and Rebecca overhears him now please remember that Rebecca had already received the spiritual prompting while she was yet pregnant with uh, Jacob and Esau And she knew from the Lord that, in fact, Jacob was to be the birthright son. And so after she overheard Isaac giving the instruction to Esau, she took Jacob aside and uh, she told Jacob to go and uh, put on some hairy appearing clothing to cover himself and that she would prepare that meal for for Isaac, and that Jacob should go in, in Esau's stead. We see a little bit of anxiousness on uh, Jacob's part about deceiving his father. Um, He is concerned that his father will know him and recognize him, and he also does have respect for his father, and we can sense that in the concern that um, he expresses about, about doing this. Um, but uh, undoubtedly the spirit had also confirmed to Jacob as well. And as I said, it was probably spoken of in the family that uh, Rachel had had this revelation. We can't help but wonder if Isaac had also had it confirmed to him. And and so we we see here a normal family. Uh, We see that uh, lots of times um, we get in the way of uh, what we know should happen. And uh, Jacob goes in and pretends that he is Esau, and uh, Isaac gives Jacob the birthright blessings. And so, when uh, Esau comes back, uh, both Esau and Isaac are very distressed when they realize that the blessing, the birthright blessing, had been given to Jacob. And uh, Esau cries out that he wants a blessing, and um. And he does, uh, Esau is given a blessing, but included in that blessing is that he will serve, that he will serve under uh, Jacob. And he is very angry. Well, we have to wonder, of course, because we think Isaac is a patriarch. He has a close relationship with the Lord. He's seen the Lord at least twice that we know of. Uh, He was taught by Father Abraham, and we say to ourselves, What's the deal? Uh, why, why didn't Isaac do what he should have done? And how could Isaac be fooled? And I think it's an important discussion for us to, to ponder and, and to think about and, and to recognize and to realize uh, how we are all human and, and have our uh, fallibilities um, and yet the Lord did bring to pass what he had prophesied from the beginning, and that is that Jacob would be the, the birthright, the birthright son. Um, you know, we, we grieve with uh, Esau a little bit, uh, but I think it's important for us to understand that this, what, this is not something that occurred uh, suddenly, so to speak, in terms of the fact that Esau was old enough to have married and to have married outside the covenant, and that um, all of this had transpired uh, building up to this day. It wasn't a day that suddenly that, um, that Esau lost his birthright. We might feel some reassurance about Isaac's role and Isaac's peace of mind when we continue